Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, what are some key science-related arguments for God's existence? Ken will discuss four of them, two on this podcast and two on the next. And Ken, you want to take some time to unpack these, and it's a it's a good time to do it. Here we are embarking on a new year, and some new listeners, no doubt, have come along. So it is a good time to take a look at some of these bigger arguments. Yeah, I would say, Joe, that uh, the existence of God is one of the truly big questions, you know, in philosophy. And obviously, whatever answer you come up with, it's going to impact who you think you are and your relationship to the world. So I think it's kind of good to look at them. And uh, I'm going to look at them from a special kind of angle. Uh, I'm going to look at four philosophical arguments, but I'm going to argue that I think that they're informed by science. Hmm. And uh, that's sometimes a very helpful way to think about these uh, arguments. They have been around for a long time, even before Christianity. They certainly go back to the ancient Greeks. But modern science, I think, weighs in on them. So I'm I'm thinking this might be very helpful to people as they think about God and uh, the reason why we believe God does, in fact, exist. All right. Well, that's a good uh, introduction to the two podcasts. Let's uh, get going. My thinking cap is on. Very good. Well, I want to look at two cosmological arguments. Obviously, the word cosmos means universe. So the cosmological argument is an argument that tries to prove God's existence from what we observe uh, with regard to the universe. This would be very different, for example, than the ontological argument where you, you try to reason to God from reflection. With the cosmological argument, you're looking at the cosmos itself, the universe itself, and you're drawing that there are things about the cosmos that uh, that it that point to God. There are things about the cosmos that need explanation, and God is the very best explanation for that. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at a very popular argument for God's existence. This is known as the Kalam cosmological argument. Kalam comes out of the Arabic world. Uh, Joe, it's interesting that in the Middle Ages, uh, Aristotle became famous again, and he became famous uh, first in the Islamic community and then later in the Christian community. So someone like Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval Catholic philosopher, he had a synthesis of a Christian Aristotelian uh, philosophy. Well, the the Muslims attempted to do something very similar to that. They saw Aristotle as a brilliant thinker, that there was truth in the Aristotelian philosophy. And one of the features that came out of uh, the Arabic world was the Kalam cosmological argument. So let me let me talk a little bit about the argument itself. Then we'll talk a bit about how I think science really uh, informs it. And the Kalam argument is really pretty simple. There are two premises followed by a conclusion. We call that in logic a syllogism. 
exactly two premises followed by a conclusion. Uh, your premises, of course, in an argument, they're your support for your claim, support for your conclusion, the facts, the evidence that support the uh, inference that you're drawing. And obviously, the conclusion is the claim you're making or what you want people to accept. So premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being. It's very important to understand that first premise. Whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being. We're not saying that everything needs a cause. We're saying specifically here, whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being. Um, Ken, if, if I may interject, so this would rule out that common objection, uh, who created God? Is that is that correct? Very important point you're you're touching on right there, that uh, we're not saying everything needs a cause. A necessary being wouldn't need a cause. A universe that was necessary, that is, that eternally existed, wouldn't need a cause. Uh, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God De Delusion, misunderstands this argument. So we want to emphasize that first premise, whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being. Number two, the second premise, the universe began to exist. Therefore, conclusion, the universe has a cause for its coming into being. Now, this idea of a universe that had a beginning, I think when we think about Judaism and Christianity, we think about the biblical context, because I'm not arguing here just uh, theism. I'm arguing the biblical God's existence. And I'm applying a philosophical argument to that kind of context. But this idea of creation ex nihilo is very important in a biblical context. The idea there is that nothing existed but the triune God. Nothing. No matter, no energy, no time, no space, no um, external realities. You know, Plato said, the demiurge took pre-existent matter and fashioned a world. Well, Christians push back on that idea, and they say, no, it's creation ex nihilo. It is creation out of or from nothing. It's not that God took nothing as a thing. Rather, only God existed. There wasn't anything else to exist. And God, out of his infinite power and wisdom, brought into existence the universe. And of course, we see lots of biblical data for this. There are Hebrew scholars that differ with me here, but I think Genesis 1.1 is a solid support for creation ex nihilo. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew expression heavens and earth means the totality of all things. Uh, I think there is solid support for it in, in the New Testament, John 1 talks about uh, the word that was with God and was God, created all things. Uh, another in the Pauline epistles, Colossians 1, uh, that, that uh, the Lord brought it all into existence. And then even Hebrews 1, uh, and whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, it talks about this kind of idea of creation ex nihilo. Now, obviously, to uh, our listeners, and uh, especially those who are familiar with reasons to believe, um, I, I think in many respects, Joe, uh, Hugh Ross started 
reasons to believe in light of Big Bang cosmology. Uh, you've edited a number of Hughes books. Uh, you know, that goes right back to that early period. His first book was The Fingerprint of God. Uh, his second book, uh, The Creator in the Cosmos, which, by the way, I think is his best book. Uh, he has a lot of really fine books, but I love that book because uh, I think what we see is this emergence of Big Bang cosmology. And again, what do we mean by that? Well, it means that the universe had a singularity. It had a unique beginning, uh, approximately 14 billion years old. I think the number they use now Jeff and uh, Hugh and and uh, our former colleague Dave, 13.8, 13.7 billion years ago. Um, so the universe came into being out of a cataclysmic but controlled explosion, if you will, and that's an explosion of heat and light. And uh, the vast majority of research scientists in the area of cosmology I think for the last more than 50 years, um, you know, if you think back to the 1960s, uh, Penzias and Wilson discovered the cosmic background radiation. That was kind of a confirmation of this idea that the universe had a singular beginning. Now, of course, it's very important to realize that uh, there are people who raise question about the beginning. Uh, on a number of occasions on this program, in my books, Jeff's Swearing, Hugh Ross, we've talked about uh, a multiverse. Maybe the beginning of this universe is not the beginning of all things. Maybe there is a near infinite number of universes. So maybe we can dodge the idea of an explanation or a need for God. I think there are lots of big problems with that. And I, I don't want to say a lot about it, but I will say this. I think to me, as I think about science, and and uh, I study scientists who do science, that is, I'm interested in the philosophy of science. I'm not a trained scientist myself. But it seems to me, Joe, that right at the core of science is uh, observation and experimentation. Observation and experimentation. Well, if there are universes outside of our universe, we can't observe them. And we can't, at, at, at least at this point, I can't think of any way that we could experiment with it. And, and there are some pretty fine scientists who are not necessarily Christian who have said that this is speculation uh, because observation and experimentation are so critical to science. So I think people have... Uh, for the people who have dismissed Big Bang cosmology or who have suggested that there's somehow a way of dodging the beginning, getting around the beginning, I don't think that that's I don't think that's correct. I think that we still have scientific evidence that the universe uh, had a beginning. And of course, uh, the way the Kalam cosmological argument addresses this. So now let's shift uh, back to a little philosophy and a little mathematics. The uh, Arabic philosophers in the Middle Ages, they said, look, um, you can't have a past infinite. And part of the Kalam cosmological argument addresses this question of actual and potential infinities. Uh, 
let, let me let me explain them as simply as I can. A potential infinite is, I think, what most of us are familiar with. That is, if I have uh, an infinite number of uh, uh, library books, I can put more books in the library, or I can take books out of the library, and the number would fluctuate either up or down, more or less. That's a potential infinite. Uh, I've never reached an infinite number itself, an actual infinite, but things can move in the direction of adding more or taking away. Now, an actual infinite is very different than a potential infinite. An actual infinite, let's say we had an actual infinite number of library books. That'd be a pretty pretty big library. And suppose that all of those uh, library books in that uh, infinite number, uh, they were numbered. Well, what if what if all even number books were checked out, leaving only the odd number of books? How many books would you still have in the library? Well, well, here's the kicker. You'd still have the same number before any were taken away. So some people have said there's a problem here with uh, actual infinites. Now, other people have picked up this idea. William Lane Craig, a very well-known Christian philosopher and theologian, uh, Bill has been on our program uh, on a number of occasions and has uh, spoken here at, at the Reasons to Believe headquarters. Uh, Bill Craig argues this way. He, he essentially says, look, uh, when we look at actual infinities, they lead to absurdity. And so he would argue, I think very much in line with the Arabic thinking uh, in the Middle Ages, that um, maybe actual infinities are like negative numbers. Actual infinities work in mathematics the way negative numbers work in mathematics, but neither actual infinities nor negative numbers can apply to real physical realities that exist in, in the world today. Now, not everybody agrees with that. Um, there are uh, mathematicians who kind of push back on that. In fact, even here at RTB, part of our fun at uh, having a lunch discussion is uh, Jeff and I have had probably a 15-year debate going back and forth uh, over these kinds of questions. <laughs> but let me let me focus it here very carefully. If the universe doesn't have an infinite past, uh, and we can argue that mathematically, we can say that uh, an actual infinite leads to absurdities. Or we could say that uh, if there was a, an infinite past, we would never get to this present moment. We would never arrive. And that Big Bang cosmology seems to indicate that the universe had a beginning and uh, there was this expansion of the universe. So whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause for its coming into being. I think this is a basic creation argument. I think it can be applied uh, to the biblical view. And I think that it is consistent with what we see in uh, Big Bang cosmology. Now, now again, um, the pushback, uh, some are going to say, I'm not sure I agree with the mathematical 
uh, absurdities of actual infinites. There are some people who push back that way. And there are others who say, maybe, maybe you have some kind of, uh, maybe you have some kind of origin, but, but we don't know that you have an exact beginning. Now, I would raise the question here, Joe, if, if the Bible teaches the universe was created, that it had some kind of origin or beginning, um, I think that's such an important biblical idea that if it were negated, that would be a potential defeater for the Bible and for historic Christianity. Uh, but yet nothing I think we see uh, supports negating that idea. And I think what's helpful about the Kalam argument is it's pretty understandable. You know, if something had a beginning, well, there had to be a cause. And so philosophers in various ways through the Kalam cosmological argument have argued that if the universe is to be explained, that explanation is going to be God. And uh, again, this is not the only cosmological argument. I want to look at another one that I think might even be stronger, mm. but um, this is a very powerful one. If, if the universe, if matter, energy, space, and time had a singular beginning, then I think it's reasonable to ask, what is the cause? And uh, Christian thinkers and Jewish thinkers uh, and Muslim thinkers have used this type of reasoning for, for arguing. And again, uh, I've known Hugh Ross a long time, I think that it was the emergence of Big Bang cosmology, the acceptance of Big Bang cosmology in the scientific community that really led Hugh to uh, begin the ministry of reasons to believe. Think back to that early book, The Fingerprint of God uh, and the Creator in the Cosmos. So what do you think of that? You have questions or concerns or issues with the Kalam cosmological argument? No, I like it. Uh, just to clarify what you've already said, but uh, just to, to make it clear that the uh, two premises and the conclusion uh, are not saying uh, that the the conclusion is not saying that God is the the cause. That that can be further argued, but Kalam is just saying uh, the universe has a cause for its coming into being. I wonder yeah. if you might comment on that. Yeah, let's go back to that. Um, you know, when, when people raise the question, uh, and Richard Dawkins does, he says, look, if you say God doesn't need a cause, then I'm going to say the universe doesn't need a cause. The problem, though, is that nothing in the universe seems like it's a necessary being or a, a non-contingent. The word contingent in philosophy means dependent upon. A contingent entity uh, could bring uh, a contingent entity could either exist or not exist, but it couldn't bring itself into existence. It's dependent. Everything we know about the universe indicates that it is a contingent reality. It didn't have to exist, but it does, but it could explain its own existence. Now, a contingent entity or a contingent reality is fundamentally different than a necessary reality. A necessary reality would be something that cannot not exist. It would have to exist. So, so here is a, here's a side argument that I'm going to use. If anything now exists, if anything now exists, I think we're pretty confident of that. There's a universe. 
Uh, you and I exist, people listening to the podcast. I'm looking into the laptop here. Uh, Jordy, our engineer, I think he exists. We're, we, we're pretty confident of that. So if anything now exists, then something must be eternal or something non-eternal emerged from nothing. If anything now exists, pretty confident of that, then there must be a necessary reality or a non-necessary contingent reality popped into existence from nothing. What I'm arguing there is, I think it's pretty pretty sure that an eternal reality exists. If any contingent reality exists, then there has to be an eternal reality. Now the question is, is that the universe or is that God? Nothing I think we discover about the universe indicates that it's eternal. So when you ask the question, well, who made God? It's kind of like asking, what does the note, uh, the musical note D smell like? Or, uh, you know, how much does the color red weigh? You're, you're asking a question that is a category mistake. And, and so this is that broad reasoning, Joe, that the universe in the minds of the ancient Greeks, like Plato and Aristotle, in the minds of uh, medieval uh, Christian thinkers like uh, Thomas Aquinas and various others, all the way up to today, that if the universe has an, ex an explanation, that exp explanation is God. Hmm. And yeah. um, go ahead. Uh, another question, and you've been talking about it, but I'll state it so it's... Uh, uh, in front of us. Um, some people will grant that the universe began to exist, but it seems like they really don't want to be responsible to the God of the Bible. So they'll hold out hope that we're going to find out a cause for its coming into being that does not include a deity known as the God of the Bible. Uh, you know what I'm getting. I think it, I think yeah. it's called infinite regression, but you, you know what I'm what I'm trying to ask. So I'd like your response. Yeah, let's look at the couple things there. Um, you know, some people, some people, when they think about something having a beginning, well, um, maybe we could say, um, well, what created the universe? Well, God. But then, who made God? God uh, to the second power. But who made him? God to the third power. Aristotle, centuries ago, says, look, that won't work because you can't have an infinite list of contingencies. There has to be at the foundational level something that exists necessarily. The whole, the whole sequence could never, never begin. Now, you've raised another issue, and I think it's a very uh, powerful point, and, and that is to come to believe in God is not a mere intellectual process. It's not just looking at premises that are made up of reasons or facts or evidence and then drawing the proper inference. Um, if we're to open up the pages of Scripture, we realize that um, people have reasons for not believing. Uh, we have original sin. Uh, sin has affected our entire being. Whether you think we're guilty in Adam or not, uh, even Keith Parsons, one of the leading uh, philosophers, says that 
Christianity's best argument is original sin. Um, it appears, Joe, and, and we talk a lot about prejudice and bias these days. You might say that from a biblical point of view, being a fallen person means that we have an inherent prejudice or bias against God. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed within me, I don't like people holding me accountable, especially morally. And I have this tendency to want to dodge that responsibility. Well, um, it takes uh, it takes moral courage to be able to say, I did it. I'm guilty. I take responsibility. I don't have an excuse. Um, in a cosmic sense, as fallen human beings, we uh, to come to believe in God, there has to be a spiritual birth. There has to be a, a, a moral framework. Uh, many of Christianity's classical uh, Christian thinkers, all the way up to the Reformation and even to the modern day, that somehow God has to illumine our minds because our because sin can darken our thinking. Our mind has to be illuminated. Our heart has to be softened. Our will has to be inclined. Um, Sunday, when I was at church, I attended an Anglican church. Um, and when we went through the Ten Commandments, the uh, the the response on the part of the congregation is to say, Lord, have mercy upon me and incline my will to keep these commandments. This is not something I can do just by, uh, you know, sticking my feet in and 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 forcing myself to do it. So I think it's very important when we're talking about apologetics and philosophy to tie them back to biblical ideas and theology. Pe people are not saved technically by arguments. They're saved by the grace of God. Now, I believe God uses arguments because we are we are uh, vo volitional and creatures capable of rationality. So um, I think it makes a lot of sense that uh, maybe we want to sidestep God and we have a bias and a prejudice, and God has to break that down. Now, how does he do it? Well, here you're going to have differing theological ideas. Some people believe that we have the capacity, God has to woo us. There are other schools of thought, the Augustinian school behind Luther, behind Calvin and others, that, no, God has to do heart surgery, so to speak. Uh, and yet, once it's done, then that person has a unique spiritual freedom to embrace and, and believe the gospel. So I think our philosophy and our apologetics has to has to has to be shaped by sound biblical ideas. And I, and I think it's tempting, uh, you know, to, to go headstrong in philosophy or headstrong in science and not realize that we are Christians and we believe not just in any God, not just in the universal theistic God. We believe in the biblical God, and the biblical God is a God of justice and morality. How about a second cosmological argument? Are you ready for it, Joe? Bring it on. Okay. Now here is a here is a really kind of a a, a different way of of thinking about the cosmological argument. 
Um, you can think of it in in this kind of context, and and so uh, as as we kind of work through these, um, I want you to appreciate that we're reasoning somewhat differently here. This this approach would say, for example, that uh, the God of the Bible provides a plausible explanation for the very universe's beginning. And the way we can kind of sort through that is to think of it this way. Why does the why does anything at all exist? Why is there anything at all? And here I want to introduce you to, um, to a text that I read many years ago. It is entitled Metaphysics by Richard Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R. It's in the Foundation of Philosophy series. Prentice Hall is the publisher. If you ever get a philosophy book published by Prentice Hall, Joe, you've kind of reached it. Mm. You are you're at the pinnacle of philosophical success. So it, it's seen as a, a, a very scholarly um, uh, book publisher. But I want to introduce you to some statements made by Richard Taylor. So this is from his book, Metaphysics, and they have uh, a collection of books, uh, epistemology, uh, ethics, philosophy of religion. Uh, you know, there's about 12 different volumes in the series. I want to read a little bit about what Richard Taylor says here and then and then reason a little bit in this context. And I think this is gonna this is gonna relate to you, Joe, because I know how much you enjoy the outdoors and hiking. Uh, Richard Taylor says, suppose you were strolling in the woods, and in addition to sticks, stones, and other accustomed litter of the forest floor, you one day came uh, upon some quite unaccustomed object something not quite like what you've seen before and would never expect to find in such a place. Suppose, for example, that it is a large ball about your own height, perfectly smooth and translucent. You would deem this puzzling and mysterious, certainly, but if one considers the matter, it is no more inherently mysterious than such a thing that should exist than anything else should, should exist. If you are quite accustomed to finding such objects of various sizes uh, around you most of the time, you would never it would never seem as an ordinary rock. Now, let me let me take that kind of reasoning. So you and I, Joe, are we're on a camping trip, a hiking trip, and we come across a, a perfectly spherical ball. And it's uh, it it's translucent. We can see through it. It's a it's about as large or as high as as we are five nine. Um, and we then ask the question: um, Where did this come from? Why is it here? Uh, I, I remember I remember reading that, and it took me back to junior high school when we used to play basketball, and all the basketballs were void. And that was the maker of the basketball. Well, if we looked at this ball and there's no maker of it, there's no uh, producer of it, there's just this spherical ball and you found it, uh, you know, next to some rocks or a tree or, or a limb. Um, what Richard Taylor is saying, you would ask the question, how did this come into being? Why is it here? Now, 
what Taylor is really arguing here is this, that you and I and all of humanity are so used to seeing mountains and trees and stones and the ocean that we really don't ask that question anymore. It's such a common occurrence to see these things. But Taylor says, if you had never seen a rock or a tree or the ocean, and it appeared before you, you would have this fundamental sense. Well, this couldn't just be here. You know, if if I said to you, well, Joe, maybe it was just always here. Uh, I don't think that that would be satisfactory to you. And so this form of the, this is called the contingency cosmological argument. And it relates to that question, why does, why does anything exist at all? Now, uh, let me introduce a, a philosophical principle. This is known as uh, the principle of sufficient reason. Sometimes in philosophy, we just identify it as PSR, the principle of sufficient reason. The principle of sufficient reason basically says this, that everything has an adequate explanation, either in itself or in something external to it. So I don't know about you, Joe, but when I was a boy, we used to go down to Seal Beach, a local beach here in Southern California. Sometimes we'd fish off the pier. Sometimes we'd just go and swim in the water. It was about a half an hour drive from the city that I lived in. And I remember going out there and looking at the ocean, and I thought to myself, how did all this water come to be? Why is it here? Why is this ocean so huge? Why am I so small? You know, what does all this mean? Well, this, this argument is an argument from contingency, and it says that uh, if everything needs a reason for its existence, then we should be able to find it in the thing itself or, is, or in something that is the external cause of it. So we're walking in the forest. We see this translucent ball. We look it over. We don't see any production. And we ask the question, how did it get here? I don't think most people would say, well, maybe it's just always been here. I think most people would say somebody had to put it here. What Taylor is arguing is, why don't we say the same thing about mountains, oceans, trees? Because we're, we have a common experience, we somehow don't ask the underlying questions. It's kind of like when I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time. I took my family there. And um, I'd meet people in line, let's say, to see uh, the Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument or uh, to go to Ford's Theater where President Lincoln was assassinated. And I'd say... Uh, have you been here before? They said, no, you know, I've lived here my whole life in D.C., but I've never visited these places. Mm. I think they were conveying the idea they're so, they're so common to us. I've never t taken up on it. Similarly, when I was in London, I would be I'd be waiting in line to go into uh, uh, Churchill's war rooms or I might be waiting to go into. Uh, one of the great cathedrals or abbeys, and I'd ask the people, have you ever been there? 
and they'd say, you know, I've lived in London my whole life and I've never been there. Somehow we kind of take things for granted. But the principle of sufficient reason says that that things have a cause. The, the explanation is either in themselves or the explanation is in something else that that brings it uh into context. So that's a that's a very different kind of way of reasoning through uh, the contingency argument. And I like to tell myself the other day I was taking a walk, had my walking stick with me. I I've, I've always liked to do sports, but increasingly my exercise is walking and trying to get blood flowing to the brain and the heart and taking care of myself a little bit. And I, and as I was walking by, there was a walk path, a uh, dirt path that I could walk on rather than walking on the cement. And there were lots of trees there. So it was kind of cooler. It was a microcosm. I, I felt cooler walking through there. And I said to myself, why, why are these trees here? Why is the universe here? Somebody like Thomas Aquinas would say they're there because God's existence uh, allows them to be there. There's no explanation for the universe except for God. If the universe exists and it's contingent, then there has to be a necessary reality, a sufficient reason for believing that it existed. Um, again, that rather than looking at a beginning in the Kalam, uh, here you're looking at the question, what is the explanation? And if and and I think it it makes a lot of sense to me, Joe, if if contingent realities exist, and again, they can't cause themselves to exist. They could either exist or not exist. I mean, uh, you know, horses could exist, but uh, maybe when the earth is evaporated by the you know, collapse of the uh, the sun four billion years from now, maybe all the elephants will go away the way the dinosaurs went away. But a contingent being could exist or not exist, but they couldn't bring it in, into existence. What the principle of sufficient reason says here in the contingency argument is, if the universe is there, it needs an adequate explanation. And if the universe has an explanation, that explanation is God. Now, now again, you can see, you can see from this that this is an argument not on reflection. Remember, we went back to Anselm. Uh, Anselm talked about you know a perfect being, uh, and God is the greatest conceivable being, and and he was doing kind of a thought experiment in his mind. He was actually doing it in his prayer time, which always impressed me that. Anselm came up with the, the the ontological argument out of reading scripture. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Well, this isn't so much a reflection as it is an looking at the universe, looking at the cosmos, and then doing a thought experiment about what I see and how it could be. So those are two kind of ways of uh, reasoning. Um, I actually think the contingency argument is more robust than the Kalam argument, which I which I think is a good argument too. Questions, comments, 
about this kind of reasoning for God. Yeah, just so I have it clear in my mind, uh, the contingency argument, you're, you're looking at something that exists, trees, rocks, what have you, something in nature, if that's what we're looking at. And because there's something rather than nothing, the explanation must be either in that object or something outside of it. So it it's it has a contingent nature. Is that the the way to, to look at it? Yeah, let me let me state it in our uh, our syllogistic form. I don't think I did, so let me do it now. So the contingency cosmological argument is again a syllogism, two premises followed by a conclusion. The first premise, all contingent realities depend for their existence on a non-contingent or necessary reality. Mm. Okay. Again, let me state that one more time. All contingent realities depend for their existence on a non-contingent or necessary reality. Premise two, the universe is a contingent reality. Conclusion, therefore, the universe depends for its existence on a non-contingent or necessary reality. Okay. Yeah. Now, you could turn that around and say, well, Richard Dawkins says the universe is a necessary reality. But there's nothing we know about the universe that would indicate that it is anything other than contingent. And I think that basic reasoning is sound. If anything now exists, then there has to be something that's eternal or a non-eternal contingent popped into existence from sheer nothing for no reason whatsoever. I don't think things just pop into existence without a cause. Therefore, since I believe something does exist, I'm stuck with an eternal. Thomas Aquinas, Gottfried Leibniz, uh, the great German philosopher, they thought that this was a very formidable, uh, powerful argument for the existence of God. When I take a walk, I try to have go through that thought experiment and say, can you are looking at the world? Why is the world here? Why is there a moon up there? Uh, I I have uh, my five senses, and I'm observing this. How could this come into being? And I love Richard Taylor because he brings us back and says, essentially, Ken and Joe would never accept the idea that that translucent ball just popped into existence, or nor would we accept that it had always been there. And the only reason we think that about mountains and trees and oceans and rocks is because we're so used to them. Um, I think scripture says you don't want to get used to the idea that something just exists. You need to see it within that context. And so for Thomas Aquinas, seeing is a powerful evidence. Uh, there has to be some explanation for the contingent reality. Yeah, I think sometimes uh, we see from skeptics of the idea that the universe came into existence is the appeal to a brute reality, uh, right. like the laws of physics. So I wonder if that's something that uh, people tend to tend to go to in order to escape this type of argument. No, I'm really glad you raised that. That's another way of kind of coming at this. Um, Sean Carroll, who is a cosmologist who uh, teaches at um, Caltech, which is here in Southern California, our, our 
former colleague Dave Rogstad was a, a graduate there, took his uh, both his bachelor's degree and his PhD there. Sean Carroll says, uh, maybe there's just a brute reality. Uh, there's no way of kind of getting there. You know, it, there's something is a brute reality. Well, you could say by brute reality, he means a necessary reality. But there's where I'd want to apply some philosophical reasoning. And I would say, what gives you the thought that the world in which we live is anything other than a contingent reality? And even if you postulate a multiverse, which you can't observe and you can't experiment, so I wonder whether it's scientific at all, but even there you would have to say, uh, is there anything that is conceived about the multiverse that would make it a necessary reality. I think even uh, somebody like Paul Davies has said, Joe, the very distinguished cosmologist and physicist, he would say that even the multiverse would show signs of fine-tuning. So Richard Swinburne, one of the great Christian philosophers from Oxford University, he says, why would I postulate a near-infinite number of universes to explain something that could be explained by a single God. So in some ways, I think what you see in the ancient world with Plato and Aristotle, what you see in the medieval world uh, and in the church fathers, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, and various other, others, all the way up to today, is that Christians are asking the question of, what is the relationship of a contingent reality to a necessary reality? What is the relationship of something that begins to exist to the cause? And um, I think in some respects, in the secular world, uh, in the world of naturalism, and um, you know, naturalists, somebody like Richard Dawkins would say, nature is all there is. There's nothing outside of nature. Uh, there's nothing that's not natural. And, and of course, you've got, uh, you've got what we call eliminative, eliminativist naturalists. And they would say, you know, you don't even really have uh, uh, consciousness. You don't have thoughts or sensations or even morality. It's just all uh, determinism. There, there was a recent... Uh, a recent scientist who argued there's no free will, for example. Well, um, that seems very strange because you're essentially saying, I have to think that there's no thoughts or I have to, uh, uh, you know, I have to believe there's no beliefs. Others would say maybe there is morality and consciousness and free will, but maybe those are natural things. I still don't think it gets you out of the the issue. I think uh, at the end of the day, and now I'm going to move away from the scientific audience and even the philosophical audience, and maybe say to the lay people, I think the best explanation for the world in which we live is God. And I think that's essentially what scripture tells us. It doesn't make an argument as much as it implies the idea that God is the author of the universe in which we live. Now, how about some sources uh, for this? Uh, and, and again, I'm sympathetic uh, to 
the idea that, you know, you can be so technical in science that the lay audience almost loses it. And I, I'm that way myself. I've been in a room with six different physicists and I, I'm just trying the best I can to track the conversation. I've also been to philosophical conferences where uh, very little of what the philosopher had to say could be understood by anybody other than uh, a fellow philosopher. But you see, I want people to recognize that God's existence uh, is is solidly rational. And um, I like to present it as the best explanation that I that I think God explains these meaningful realities, like the universe having a beginning like the very existence, just as that translucent ball needs an explanation, we need a sufficient reason to explain it, that God is that explanation. Um, a good place to do that, Joe, to read about that, to think about that, um, I think, I don't know if you would agree with me here, but I think of all of my books, the one that has the best ratio of content, so substance, but yet accessibility, readability, is my book, Seven Truths That Changed the World. And there I look at a dozen different arguments for God's existence, including the Kalam and including the contingency cosmological arguments. Uh, if you want science, I would look at Creator in the Cosmos. If you uh, are looking uh, more broadly, uh, let me recommend Richard Taylor, his chapter, uh, his section on metaphysics and the principle of sufficient reason. So if you find a big basketball in the forest, Joe, uh, <laughs> I want you to tell me where it came from and how you explain it. <laughs> You've given me more things to think about when I go hiking. And I'm already busy because I, I like to do that. I like to look around and wonder how God uh, put certain things there. So this podcast has enhanced my hiking pleasure. So I thank you for that. <laughs> well, I, I like the pictures I see on your Facebook page. It makes me envy some uh, of the great places you're visiting. Yeah. Uh, all of God's wondrous creation. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. You heard Ken refer to some reading sources there. So good stuff for the new year to read if you have not read those already. And thank you if you've been with us this past year and in past years. We've been doing this podcast for a number of years now. And thank you for listening and look forward to a new year with you along. And uh, make sure you bring others along, pass the link, and let us know your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter now, X, uh, at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment or question here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joey Gary with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.